We are continuing in week two of our series, What We Believe. Today, Pastor Greg McCormick is teaching on what we believe about the nature of God. Well, in the 11th century, there was a man named Anselm who argued for the existence of God. And he created what's known as the Anselm's, Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God. This man later on became the Archbishop of Canterbury. And in his argument for the existence of God, he basically said that it was impossible for someone to believe or to not believe that God existed. Now, he's a theologian. I'm not a theologian. I've always kind of wondered how these guys think the way that they think. But they do. They think like on a totally different level. And here's what was written about Anselm. It says, Anselm began with the assumption that even those who deny God's existence must have some idea of what the word God means. Otherwise, how could they know what they are denying? If atheists and skeptics know that God, what God means, then God exists in their understanding. Among other things, everyone understands God to be something than which nothing greater can be thought. We cannot conceive of anything greater than God. And Anselm further assumed that it is greater to exist in reality than to merely exist in understanding. Now, check out this argument. Check this out. Anselm writes, something than which nothing greater can be thought exists in the understanding. It is greater to exist in reality than to merely exist and understanding. Suppose that something than which nothing greater can be thought existed only in the understanding. Then it would be possible to think of something even greater, namely an entity otherwise identical which also existed in reality. But this is impossible. Since by definition it is impossible to think of something greater than which something which nothing greater can be thought. <laughs> Therefore, something which nothing greater can be thought must exist in reality as well as in the understanding. And since God is something than which nothing greater can be thought, God exists in reality. Wow. Now listen, I'm not here to see whether or not you believe in the existence of God. How many of you believe in the existence of God? Yeah, and if you don't believe in the existence of God, just stay tuned. We'll get you one way or another. So I'm not here to talk to you about whether or not you believe in the existence of God. I want to talk to you today about what we believe about the nature of God. Because if we're to more clearly understand the nature of God, we must first understand two things. We must understand the difference between his essence or his nature and his attributes. The Bible tells us a whole lot about the attributes of God, but it doesn't tell us very much about his nature or essence. And I'm going to use the word nature and essence interchangeably today. Theologian Karl Barth described the essence of God as holy other. In other words, it's like there are two realities that exist on parallel planes. There's, there's our realities, and then there's God's reality that exists in an entirely different universe running parallel with ours. 
And, and we would never know or understand anything about God except for the fact that occasionally what happens is God's reality collides with our reality. And when it does, the Greeks call that experiencing what is known as a kairos moment. It's a moment in time when we realize the existence of God. And in those times, we get a glimpse of who God is. And it's in those times that God allows us to see just a little part of who he is. God is much bigger than anything that we could ever, ever imagine. And his attributes are far beyond our understanding and our comprehension. So, he is wholly other, but he's broken into our world to reveal himself to us. And he shows us himself through his essence and through his attributes. Attributes are things that are attributed to him. Now, again, we don't know much about the nature or the essence of God, but this is what we do know. We know that God is holy. And the holiness of God is not attributable. It's essential. It is an essential part of who he is. God is holy, and that word holy means a lot of things. One thing that it means is he's one of a kind. There's none like him. He's unique. He's special. He's set apart. All these things describe holiness, and they describe the essence of God. More than any other topic, more than any other thing in the Bible, the Word of God speaks to the holiness of God. Holiness is the essence of God. It's the one thing that he's told us about his essence, that he is holy. Now, I'm going to use the word uncommon because uncommon is also a way to define or describe the holiness of God. He's, he is one of a kind. He's uncommon. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 47, or chapter 46, verse 9, God tells the prophet, he says, remember the things of old, for I am God, and, I, and there is none other. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And then the prophet Isaiah had a, a personal encounter with God in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord. He said, I personally saw him. He said, he was high and he was lifted up and his train filled the temple. And above him, circling above him were, were angels. They were seraphims and they had six wings. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they covered their face. And with two, they did fly. And they ceased not day and night, saying, holy, holy, holy. John writes, is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. He's holy. God is holy. In the book of Exodus chapter 3, Moses has his first encounter with the holy God. He's out tending his father-in-law's sheep, Jethro's sheep, or goats or whatever they were. Probably goats, man. Goats are wascally, by the way. You can't hardly tend them. They, want to, they just do their own thing. So whatever he's doing, he's out there tending to his father-in-law's flock. 
And, and as he's tending to the flock, he's, he's walking, and all of a sudden something uncommon catches his eye. He sees a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. Now, I was thinking as I was reviewing this, you know, I don't know. I, if I was Moses and I had just killed some cat and I saw a bush that was burning and wasn't being consumed, I probably would think twice about going over to, to that bush because you don't know what's going to happen. Could be God getting ready to, like, torch me or something, you know what I mean? But Moses is curious, and in his curiosity, he steps over to the bush, and he hears the voice of God saying, Hey, Moses, take off your shoes, because the ground that you're about to step on is holy ground. It's uncommon. It speaks to the essence of who I am. God is holy. He is uncommon. That is what we know. So now I want to talk to you about the three attributes of the essence or the nature of God, his holiness. The first attribute I want, to, I want you to know is that God is absolutely sovereign. He's sovereign. And in his sovereignty, God has ultimate control over everything. He does whatever he desires to do. He does what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it, why he wants to do it. That's what it means to be sovereign. And the unique, the unique thing about sovereignty is that the terms or the boundary of the sovereignty are always described or defined and determined by the sovereign. Take, for example, sovereign grace. In, in sovereign grace, God desires only what's good for us, so his grace balances his sovereignty. So when God speaks and he gives man and woman a command and he gives them a choice, he limits his own sovereignty to do whatever he wants to by his grace. So now God, once he gives a choice, can't take the choice away. That's me, huh? See, my ringtone when I get a text is a sheep, it's a goat. That's how I know it is defined. Little side journey there. So, once God gives the choice, he can't take the choice away from man and woman because he gave it to him, but he's still sovereign. And once God promises something, he can't go back on his promise. And here's why. Because, because it's to this truth about, about God and his sovereignty and his promise that the writer of Hebrews says this. He says there are two immutable, unchangeable things about God's attributes. One is he cannot change. And the other is that he cannot lie. And so from the very beginning of time, before time even began, this sovereign God set the terms for his sovereignty for all eternity, and then he chose in his sovereignty to abide by his own word. God is sovereign. That's the first attribute. The second is that he's communal. He's relational. Here's what that means. We believe that there is only one true and living God, eternally existent in three persons, God the Father, 
God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the three of them make up the totality of the essence of God. So the three of them together make up God. So they are three in personalities, but they are one in essence and nature. We have no example that we can use that would clearly define the Trinity. But what, be, what we believe is that God is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Listen, God the Father is not God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. God the, the Son is not God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not God the Father or God the Son. They are all three distinct personalities when the three of them make up the essence of God. God is communal, has been from the very beginning. He understands relationship. He authored it before time began. And then he models it for us. And we're not going to go any further into the Trinity. We're going we're to dive deeper into that in the weeks ahead as we talk individually about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Corey's going to kick it off next week talking about the Father. But back to God. God, the totality of God, is sovereign. And he's communal. He understands relationship. That's the second attribute. And the third attribute of God's holiness is where we're going to spend the most of our time today is that in his holiness, he is uncommonly good. God is good. Goodness, God's goodness is an attribute of his holiness. In Genesis 1, we see the nature of God in his goodness, in the story of creation. And what God wants us to see, family, from the very beginning, what he tells us from the very beginning is that he is good. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth without form and void. He does what he does in the first day, and at the end of the first day, he sees his work, and he says, ah, oh, man, that's good. At the end of the second day, he does the same thing. Oh, man, that's good. All the way, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day, he gets to the end of the sixth day, and he's like, man, now that is very, very good. He wants us to know from the very beginning that he's good. And listen, it's all right if you're God to boast on what you do, to know that you're good at something. You're God. Right? You're sovereign. You can do what you want. You can boast on yourself. So God from the very beginning says, I'm good and I know that I'm good. You know, my father, for about 34 years, was a heavy equipment operator. One of the best in the state. Worked civil service for many years. And my wife and I, in our first house, we had this project that we wanted to do. We were going to add on to our first house because um, our, we, we, our family had grown and we were outgrowing the house. It was a little small house, and so we wanted to add on about 700 square feet onto this house. Which means that if you're going to add on to a house, you've got to dig down in the foundation so you can build, you know, dig down to the gravel so you can dig or build a, a solid foundation, right? 
go down to bedrock or gravel, whatever's, whatever substance down there gives you a firm footing. So we did that. But to do that, I called my dad, and I said, Dad, I said, um, we got this project we want to do. We want to build on our house, and, and I want you to, to operate the equipment and dig the hole for me. I told him, I said, so, Dad, I'm going to get you a backhoe, and will you come over and do it? And my dad, he said to me on the phone, he goes, backhoe? I don't want no backhoe. He said, get me a front-end loader. I said, front-end loader, Dad. He said, yeah, bring me a front-end loader. So I go down to Jackovich Tractor and Trailer. That's the cat dealer, right? So I go down to the cat dealer, and I, I, I go up to him and to the counter, and I say, you know, I, I need a, a front-end loader to, because I'm trying to do some remodeling in my house. i got to dig a foundation out. And the guy says to me, he says, uh, so uh, who's going to be operating this? I said, uh, my father. He said, who's your father? I said, Otis McCormick. He says, oh, Mac. I said, yeah. He said, well, let me do something for you. I'm going to upgrade you to the high model, to the big boy, right? So I'm like, yeah, give me the big boy, you know. He takes me out there. That thing is humongous. I mean, it's huge, and I have to drive it to my house. My house is 20 miles from the, the shop. And so now I'm, I'm, I'm getting up there. He's giving me these instructions on how to operate this thing. I'm like, man, I'm, listen, I didn't say it then, but I said now. I was scared to death. Because here's what's happening. That thing took up the entire lane, man. And I'm driving on the highway, and it doesn't turn like a normal car. It turns in the front. It turns in the middle. So if you, if you touch it, it's waskily, and it just goes all over. And I'm thinking, I'm going to crush somebody today. I just know it in this big old thing. But I get it to my house, and I park it on the side of the driveway, and I call my dad. I said, Dad, I said, I got, I got the front end loaded. He's like, I could just hear him on the phone. Oh, yeah. He has no idea I got in the big boy, right? So he gets to my house. He pulls up, and he sees this big thing, and it's like a kid in a candy store. He gets into this thing. He's like, and he's going, he just takes it. He drives around the side, and the first thing he does is just start clearing trees. I have an acre land. He's just clearing trees. I'm like, Dad, I got to dig a hole. He could care less about the hole. I'm clearing trees. I got this great big old front end loader, right? And he's good. He's clearing these trees out, and he's looking at me like, <laughs> I said, yeah, Dad, you're good. So now it comes time to dig, to dig the hole for the house, and we've got this fuel tank out just adjacent to the house, and, and my dad comes in, and he starts, he, I mean, he's just like aggressive. He just takes this big bulldozer, and, mm, 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 mm. he takes it, and he dumps it. Comes back over, mm, mm, mm. He just, I mean, he's like aggressive. I'm like, man, look at this dude go, Dad. So he's digging his big hole, right? He gets the big hole down there, and, it's, and it's, he gets it all the way down, and he gets right close to the fuel tank. And, and, he's, and he gets to the fuel tank, and he just starts gently nudging the dirt away from the fuel tank. And he digs down around it and digs a big hole down where the fuel line is. And then he looks at me and says, jump down in the hole. So I jumped down in the hole. He says, you see the fuel line? I said, no. So I took my shovel, and I uncovered about this much dirt. That's all that was on top of the fuel line. This man knew exactly what he was doing. So I looked up at my dad. I said, man, he's like, huh, am I good or what? Am I good or what? You know. So now it's time to get up close to the house, right? So he's digging out in the back of the house, and he's like, he's like yay far away. And then he gets closer and closer 
and closer and closer until he's about this far away from the wall. And then like, he's just gently nudging. Now, you got to keep in mind, this is a big piece of equipment, man. This thing is like, it's just, it's towering almost the level of my house. And he's just gently nudging this thing. Just, and he gets the dirt all the way this close to the house. He says, jump down in the hole, man. See if you can see the foundation. So I jumped down in the hole. I took the dirt on the shovel, and I just hit the dirt against, or the shovel against the wall, and the dirt just fell off the wall, and my dad went, oh. <laughs> he jumps down off the gray, off the, off the, the front end loader, and he looks at me, and I could just see in his eyes, am I good or what? So we dialogue about that, and I, and I thanked him for the awesome job that he did because what he did was so good. But let me ask you a question. At the end of that job, was I praising how good the job was, or was I praising my dad for being good? I was praising my dad because he's good. God is telling us, I'm good. There's no one good like me. I'm the goodest. I just made that up, man. I, I think when I write my book, that'll be my first word, goodest. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm good, man. And then this holy God and his goodness, he creates man. And he, he makes man in his own image. And he gets, puts limits around a, a man in, in the garden and tells him there's something that, that I don't want you to do. He puts limits around, in his goodness, he puts limits around man. He says, I want you to enjoy my goodness. I got to step back. I got to tell you something. I don't want you to miss this. See, on the sixth day when God created man, the Bible says that man, that God formed man out of the dust of the ground. He put his fingerprints all over him. You can't touch something and not put your fingerprints on it, right? He puts his fingerprints all over man to identify him that he belongs to me. And then he breathes into him the very essence of his presence. And man becomes a living being. So God creates man in his own image with the very essence of his spirit on the inside of him. And then he says, I want you to be good just like I'm good. I want you to be holy just as I am holy. But man rejects it. He rejects the goodness of God. And as a result of man rejecting the goodness of God, he becomes guilty. Because he transgresses the justice, the justness of God. And he also becomes helpless because he turns his back on the mercy of God. So now man is both guilty of transgression and helpless to do anything about it. And man is on the horns of a dilemma. Because he wants to come back in relationship with God, but he can't because he's guilty and he can't atone for his own sins. He's helpless so he's on the horns of a dilemma. But God is also on the horns of a dilemma. Because God in his goodness is uncommonly just. It's an expression of his commitment to truth. And he's uncommonly merciful. It's an expression of his commitment to grace. The truth of God demands justice. But the grace of God wants to grant mercy. 
But remember, man has rejected the goodness of God. And to reject God's goodness is sin. And the requirement for sin, the punishment, is death. Now, I was sitting down with Dan Gerald this week, and, and man, he hooked me up. I See, I thought, I always thought that death was the absence of life. Dan said, no, no, death is not the cessation of life. Death is the separation of things that ought to be joined together. Okay, remember this. Remember, God, God creates man. He breathes into man the very essence of his spirit, and at that point, they became one. Man was an eternal being, right? Death was never meant to be. It's the tearing away of things that were meant to be joined together. You know, I came across this article the other day from Family Life. It's about this, this couple that had been married for 70 years. 70 years they were together. Loved each other for 70 years. The woman was 92. The man was 91. And when one of them died, the other died within 15 hours. Because physically, they were meant to be together. And physical death tore them apart. So it is in the spirit realm. Spiritual death rips apart the two things that were never meant to be separated. Created by God, the eternal God, to be joined together for an eternity. Ripped apart. Ripped apart and so there's isolation the opposite of death is relationship the opposite of death is relationship and when God created us, he created us with the very essence of his spirit, which means, meant he gave us eternal life, never to be separated from him. Death rips eternal creation, man, apart from the eternal creator, God, and then creates eternal separation and isolation. It's the payment for sin. It's death. The Bible tells us in Romans 3 and 23 that the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. That word sin literally in its meaning describes independence. So listen to this. The wages, the payment for independence is isolation, death. So God says, listen, if you want to do things your way, you, you want to have everything your way, you want to do things by yourself, independent of me, Separated and isolated from me, your payment for that is death. Justice demands death as a payment for sin. But what justice demanded, mercy provided through the death, burial, or resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross paid the debt that humanity could not pay. And so it's through the death of Jesus Christ that God's justice is satisfied. God's mercy in his holiness is, is magnified. And the holiness of God is glorified. Lee, you can bring your, you can bring your team up. And God is all about glorifying himself. And as I said earlier, there's nothing wrong 
with bringing glory to yourself if you're God. And he's good. And he wants us to be an example of his goodness. So what does that look like? The prophet Micah in Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says it this way. It says, God's not interested in the sacrifices of things that, that you want to give him because you think it will suffice. No. He's shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. What is good and what he requires of you. And it's to do justly. It's to love mercy. And it's to walk humbly with our God. I want to close today by giving you some practical steps to do that. When it comes to living a life that's good and pleasing to God, God says, seek justice. Seek ways to, to do justice, to live justly. And here's what that means. It means as followers of Jesus Christ, every single one of us know people that don't know Jesus. That one day is going to stand before God, our God, who is going to judge them for every deed that they've done in their life. Justice outside of relationship with Jesus Christ means eternal death and separation. And every follower of Jesus Christ who knows someone that is not saved should be begging God for the opportunity to show them the gospel, to take to them to the gospel so they can stand before a holy and just God, completely justified. So ask God this week to show you who it is that he wants to send you to that is outside of relationship with him so you can point them to the justice of God. The second thing is to pursue mercy. You all know that I'm big on relationship, man. I hate to see broken relationships. And there are some of you sitting in this place right now that know that you have relationships that are broken. And you have not displayed the mercy of God in that relationship. God is love. And our Father tells us that we are to love mercy. And so this week, I urge you, if you've got a broken relationship, ask God to show you how to be merciful to that person in that relationship just as he's been merciful to you. And the third step is to embrace humility. You may be sitting here today and maybe you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, you don't, you don't have to walk out of here the same. 
You have a God that loves you and wants to be good to you. All he wants you to do is in total humility, surrender your life to him. You can do that today. Right where you're sitting in your seat. Maybe, maybe you're, you're living your life in a way that you know is not pleasing to God because in your independence, in your arrogance, you decided to do things your own way. God says, listen, I just want you to humble yourself before me. If you do, I will show you my goodness like you have never seen before. Surrender. Embrace humility. And then the final thing I want to say is this. Reach for relationship. Lee said this last week. I thought it was great, so I wanted to bring it back to you again. Reach for relationship. God gives us through the person of Jesus Christ a model of relationship that every follower of Christ needs to imitate. Our up relationship with the Father where we spend time alone in our private time in our private life with God, just him and us, where we are just being with our God. And then, and then he leads us from that closet time into our public life where we have people in our personal space where God is saying, reach out in that relationship because iron sharpens iron. Don't neglect that. And then finally, I said this before, but I'm going to come back to it again. Reach out to those that are lost. We have tremendous opportunity to do that, family. And God wants to use us in his holiness to display his goodness through us to the world around us. Let's pray. We love you. God, we love you. As David said, create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. Search us, know our hearts, try us, test us. And if there's anything that's not like you, show us, take it out. Because we want to be holy just as you, God, are holy. This is our prayer. In Christ's name, amen.